Dear sisters and brothers in Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Well, a special word of thanks to the men down in the shop for making the cross that was given to the Fonkert family, to Astrid, and to the seventh grade confirmation students who made the quilt that will wrap her up, I suspect. And good job, Grandpa. Nicely done. Well, I want you to use your imagination this morning. I want you to imagine that you're arrogant and rude and full of yourself and that you're an attorney. That was my feeble attempt at an attorney joke, just so you know. I used to be pastor for more attorneys than I knew what to do with when I was out in Pierre. I'd had 12 years of not having any attorneys. I'd had all kinds of farmers and teachers and doctors and nurses. And then I got to Pierre and I was surrounded by attorneys. They were everywhere. And uh, I grew to very much appreciate their work. But on this morning, I want you to be this young attorney that's in scripture. He's a Noikamoth, he is an attorney. He's a student of the law. And he comes full of himself, full of himself, as arrogant as anyone could imagine being arrogant. He's got a teacher, a rabbi, who should have been respected, but he comes with a kindergarten question. It would be the equivalent if you had a, someone in front of you, a woman or a man who had a PhD in astrophysics, and you came to them and said, tell me what's the answer for two plus two? I can't imagine doing that. I've met some astrophysicists, and uh, I can't imagine being that full of myself. But that's what this attorney is doing. This is a kindergarten question being asked to a teacher of the synagogue. He's as full of himself as one could even hope for. He wants to embarrass Jesus. That's his point. He doesn't really want an answer. He just wants to embarrass this rabbi. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And of course, being a good rabbi, Jesus doesn't answer the question. He gives him another question in response. Well, what does the law say? And of course, the, the young man gives the answer that one would have expected. This is the answer that you would have learned as a little girl or as a little boy on your grandma or your grandpa's knee. You would have heard this from your very beginning. You will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul and your strength, and he adds your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Every day when that gentleman went to prayers, he would have taken a phylactery and he would have bound it to his forehead, and he would have taken the second one and he would have bound it to the, his back of his right hand. And in those little tiny boxes, the answer that he just gave would have been written by him and placed in that little box. This is just a foolish question in the sense that he's just wanting to embarrass Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, first of all, what, what must you do to inherit Warren Buffett's wealth? It would be that kind of question. What must you do? Well, it would be helpful if you were one of Warren's children, right? I mean, I've met him once briefly. I'm sure he's going to give me at least a billion. 
maybe a billion and a half because I was so nice to him in that 30 seconds that we actually met one another. Really? No. There's not one chance in any kind of world where Warren Buffett's going to leave me anything. Not even a gift card to Perkins. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you'd better be a child of God. That would be first and foremost. And of course, this attorney in all of his food, fullness of himself knows for sure that he's already in. You can't be a better Jew than what he is. He's got it made. He studies God's law all the time. I'm sure he did his prayers every moment that he could come up with. He is without a doubt working his way into heaven. And then comes the answer. Well, you, you answered correctly, Jesus says to him. You got it right. And he doesn't quite pat him on the top of the head, but he, I suspect he thought about it. And then he realizes that he's painted himself into a corner. Well then, who is my neighbor? Now we're gonna make it nice and easy. Because the word neighbor means nearby the one who is nearby. So if I can just pick out the people that I want to be neighbor to, I think I can get this done. I think I could just love them enough, those that I like enough, those that are near enough, those that are just like me to make this work. He's created a world where he wants to be in charge, he wants to work his way into heaven, he's got it made. And then comes a parable. Now, parables were designed by rabbis not to win a point, but they were designed to move you. The, when you heard a, a parable, you were supposed to be moved emotionally. As one of my professors, Dr. Ferdy, talked about parables, it was the equivalent of getting punched in the gut. I've been punched in the gut. It was not a pleasant experience. It caught me unaware. I had a visceral response. That's what the parable is designed for. And it's the story you all know. Know it well. A man is beaten, robbed, left naked in the ditch, bleeding. And now here comes two church workers. We have a bishop and a pastor. I changed it just so I could pick on myself this morning. And they both have perfectly good reasons for not going over there. They're, they're really worried about their work. And if they get blood on their feet, they can't go to work for at least a week. And if, in fact, the man is dead and they touch him, then they can't go to work for a whole month. They're thinking of their families. They're thinking of their fellow employees. They're thinking of their work at the temple. They've got more good reasons to not go over there than you and I can even come up with. But then there comes the Samaritan. Now again, we just don't get it anymore. You wouldn't ever put good Samaritan together in the first century. Samaritans were worse than the black sheep of the family. They were considered to be half-breeds. They had married outside the faith because there wasn't enough of them. They worshiped in the wrong place. They actually sacrificed outside of Jerusalem. They interpreted the Torah differently. They were, they were outside the community as far as Jews were concerned. They were not worthy. They were not worthy 
of even being in a conversation. Truthfully, if you were all good Jews living in the first century, you would actually have gone around Samaria. You wouldn't even want to walk through there. So the Samaritan comes, does what neighbors should be doing, puts the animal on his animal, takes him to an end, and goes more than out of his way to tend to him. And then comes those words. So who, who was the neighbor? Who was the neighbor to the man in the ditch? And of course, there's no place to go, right? It's the Samaritan. Well, go and do that. Go and do that. So now I want you to imagine that you're the one in the ditch. Because after all the years that I've been a pastor, all the years that I've been in the faith community, most of the time I find myself just being the one in the ditch. Naked, bloody, beaten up, with no opportunity, no possibility. But I'm a good Jew. And now here comes the one who is going to tend me. And it's the Samaritan. I'm the person who would have gone around Samaria. I would not have walked through there for nothing. And now the Samaritan is the one who is going to come and give me mercy? I don't want mercy from a Samaritan. I want to be like the rich young ruler. The, I want to be like the attorney. I want to be in charge of my life. I don't want to be here in the ditch. I don't want to need mercy from anyone, let alone that one. This is the two-edged sword of the good news of Jesus Christ. I learned it from Dr. Ferdy. One, that we receive mercy, but the sharp edge is that we need mercy that we in fact are the one in the ditch, that we cannot save ourselves, that we cannot earn our eternal life. We can't parse God's law down far enough that we can make it workable and doable. No, we're just in the ditch. And here comes the one to offer us mercy. Here comes the gut punch, the one who should not even be in our life. But yet mercy is given. What does it mean for us to live in a faith community where we regularly attempt to use status and place to earn our spot? What would a faith community look like if we just all thought of ourselves as people who just gotten out of the ditch, who just had been tended to, who had had the bill paid at the hospital? What would it be like if we were a gathering of wounded people who understood that in Jesus Christ, a gift of life has come? And if we were now the people of God, restored to life, restored to health, having been tended to, being sent out into the world, that's the gift that comes to us on this Sunday. The gift that comes in Jesus Christ, it is for you. You didn't earn it, you didn't deserve it, but it is yours. So God's blessings on you as you live out that gift throughout this week. In Jesus' name, amen.